Welcome to the Ramble Podcast. I'm your host, Joel Primus, father, entrepreneur, filmmaker, athlete, hopeful writer, and dedicated wanderer. I'm curious to learn more about how people live their lives, their struggles, and passions, and pains. So every week, with athletes, entrepreneurs, healers, adventurers, and beyond, I'm going to have unbound and uncensored long-form conversations about people, places, pursuits, and performance. Enjoy. Hello, my curious friends and curious foes. Welcome to the Ramble podcast. I'm your host, Joel, and today I have a very special guest named Daniel Fox. Now, Daniel's my type of guy, and that's not just for those who are watching this and not listening because of our matching gray beards. Uh, <laughs> we, we don't know each other super well, but we are, I feel, kindred spirits in many ways. And I think that for the adventurous and the wanderers and the dreamers out there who like smelling the trees <laughs> and the ocean and the breeze, you're going to love this. So just to do the formalities and hit the bio, Mr. Fox is the author of Feel the Wild, a book I have read and enjoyed very much. It is incredibly beautiful. And he's also the founder of The Future of Space and Space 100.10. Is that correct? Yes, 110. 110. He's a major space advocate, believing that it is nature's goal to venture into space. Nature, excuse me, space is nature. His mission is to do everything he can to promote, inspire, and bridge our species' journey into outer space. As he says, we are ambassadors for life, and it is our responsibility to share Earth's knowledge and gift so that we can support the universe's goal to connect. You're, you're a speaker, you're a writer, you're, you're so many things. And we first met when I was launching my book and you had your book out and we did a little chat on Clubhouse and it appears since then that much has there's been many new entrants into your into your world here or into the outer worlds if I <laughs> you may say so welcome to the show sir how are you excellent a pleasure to be here I'm so glad that you reached out we've been kind of cooked up in both of our little village cities I mean we're not too far away from each other but you know in the last two years we feel like even though your neighbor with your friends you're like worlds apart so i'm really happy that to be connecting uh today you too when i started this you were the name that came to my mind and i said i want to continue that conversation out of curiosity are you still on clubhouse it's really interesting because i met a lot of people in Clubhouse during a really short window of time and it served it per- its purpose. And then it became kind of, I think it, it lost its essence and people moved on, but the connections that were made there lasted out of Clubhouse. I mean, it is, you know, from time to time, I think some people will do a session and then I'm invited to, to go participate, but it doesn't have the, the, the quality of, gathering i guess that it had at the beginning and the attendance it's a lot more work for basically having a lot of few people coming in and out and the audience is not as attentive as it used to be but they were on i think i think it's social media in general that is that is something i've seen as well i have a lot of friends going back to just listen to podcasts i have to say you know tiktok is still something and twitter but in general, I've noticed 
pulling away. And yeah. I mean, this is really a, a great place to start talking about you. I, where do I want to start? <laughs> I, I, I mean, there's, I have so many, I have lists of questions for you, but who knows if we'll even get to any of it. But we, when I said we're kindred spirits in a way, Daniel, what I was driving at was we've both lived in New York yep, and we've correct. both escaped from New York. <laughs> would you, would you call that escape or would you call that? I didn't feel that I escaped from New York. I felt that my time in New York had come to an end and where I woke up one morning and it was like, okay, I'm done. Like I'm, I'm not, it, this window had served its purpose. Mm. And then it was time for me to, to move out and to, continue my next journey. Um, but I never felt that I escaped New York. Yeah. Do you, I mean, do you feel that you, you were like taken out just before, before the house collapsed? Definitely. <laughs> Definitely. Mine was like a escape in the middle of the night escape from New York um, because of mounting pressures, but yeah. I, you were let's, let's go back and yeah. let's, let's get a sense of, your history and how you came to be, I believe you're working in advertising when you went to New York. I was, I mean, I've, you know, I grew up in, in Quebec in Eastern Canada. Um, and then right after my high school, I packed my bags and I asked my father to, to take me to the, the, to the, the airport. And I flew to New York with the idea of never coming back. I was going south and I was going to make it in the big city. My, my energy always resonated to something that was more active and I needed to find my own identity. And New York was really the place where I want to go. And I was there for on and off for seven years. And I was in the, I was the, the type of person as a, as a teenager that was extremely focused, knew where I was going. I was the, the guy in, in, in the gang that just like Daniel's going to know exactly at 25 or at 30 where it's going to be. And I went to New York with that kind of energy and a kind of mindset. And two years after being in New York, I kind of had a identity crisis, the type of identity crisis that you have at 40 years old. I had it in my twenties in New York and I went back to the beginning. I went back to scratch and I decided to work on myself and, and I got to the point in New York where I reassessed how I wanted to pursue my life. I looked behind my 10 years and how I wanted my next 10 years. There was not much that I wanted to keep. And I remember asking myself the question, would I rather continue in New York City or would I live by a cabin in a cabin by the ocean in the middle of nowhere? And the answer at that time was had a cabin by the ocean in the middle of nowhere. So I was... I was in a designer, no, um, a producer for web design agency at that time. And I was just coming out of a, of a really bad uh, marriage that lasted not even three months. Uh, so it was, it was quite heartbreaking. And it was kind of the catalyst to really push me out and, and, and re-enter a journey that I'd left, I guess, you know, in my, in my youth, in my, in my teenage years. And so when I left New York, I literally just took the, the map and I, 
and I traced all the way as far as I could get to. And my first intention, my first idea was to go to the Falkland Islands because <laughs> being on the continent was not enough. I needed to be on the island. And obviously, um, the Falklands being uh, an English country from the UK, it would have facilitated my the transition. But the pound was a little bit too... Uh, too heavy for my wallet. So I ended up in, in, in Argentina. And Argentina is where I kind of was born again. And I write in the book how it's interesting how Argentina is a place where a lot of people found themselves, you know, from Charles Darwin, that's where its theory of evolution really started to take shape, where Antoine de Saint-Exupéry started to write his famous books. So Argentina has been the beginning of many, and it was, it was the place where I found myself again. So much to unpack there. But if I may, and yeah. you, you can tell me if I can't. <laughs> no. This, <laughs> you had brief marriage. You yep. said three months. Mm-hmm. What, was, what was going on to, to, to become or to get married? And, and did you know going into it that it was only going to be shorter or in terms of your headspace, was it just not the right thing and you went along with it anyway? Like when you look back at it, what what happened there for you? No, I would it was I was a I was someone who was a, who was a pretty honest in my relationships with with partners. I knew what I wanted and I and so when I commit, I commit for good. I commit with the entire awareness of if this relationship is has potential to continue or not continue. So prior to that relationship, I had a lot of, you know, I was a young bachelor, so I was enjoying life. And when when I got into this relationship, it was the first time in my life that someone gave me the the feeling that I could in turn this commitment with someone else. And it was, to be honest, it was the your your classic love story, two people who walk into a room, their gaze meet across the crowd, then there's a connection that happens at a level that that um, that sometimes it's really hard to explain. And I didn't force her, she didn't force me. It just felt like we saw the signs everywhere and we got married and it was the most awful night of my life. And within three months, she was she ended up cheating, and uh, and then it was the beginning of the end. So it was a for me. It remains one of my biggest betrayals, and and uh, I'm not gonna say failure because there's nothing that I can look back and say, you know, I did something and I had power to control it. It was just it's one of those things where all the intentions are there. And then for some reason that is bigger than you, the avalanche starts and it just becomes, there's a little boom in the mountains and then it turns into an avalanche. And next thing you know, everyone is buried. Just wrong place, wrong time, something that was not meant to happen. But in hindsight, that was the catalyst for me to enter on my personal journey led me to today. So I don't have, I've learned not to have regrets and not to look at the past and wonder what if, because the person that I am today, 
everything that I am, every single bit that I'm happy and not happy with, or the wisdom that I've, I've acquired over time is a consequence of all these elements that I live through. And if I go back and I can, if I say, oh, I wish this would have not happened, then I'm also, that means that I'm not comfortable with who I am today. And I would risk this person that I am just so I can fix something in the past. Mm-hmm. So it is unfortunate that it happened. I don't, I don't wish it on anyone to go through these kind of experiences, but they happen and I turn them, I turn them into growth opportunities and I, and I can go to bed that night in, in peace with, uh, with the, the pain and the sadness that, you know, was experienced back then. Thank you for sharing that. I know these things aren't easy to talk about because well, for some, and, and it just, betrayal is, is a tough one, right? Because it, it really, it feels so personal against us, the person who has been betrayed, but really what's happened is, you know, that person has betrayed themselves. They've betrayed their, their honesty towards their partner. They've betrayed their loyalty. They've betrayed what they held to be true. And they have to carry that. And we have to allow them to carry that while we go on our journey. But most of us for a period of time remain afraid and bitter. You know, I think, I think in many ways we've all been betrayed, not necessarily from a a lover or partner, but we know that feeling to one degree or another. And so my question that's coming from this is how soon after this event, does it spark the, the idea that you're going to travel all the way to Argentina? And the second half of that, that is, as you're doing that, is there an unfolding of this deep hurt and an understanding that's happening alongside the motion of this journey that you embark on. So maybe just give some context on the journey and, and then you know how it, it affected your healing. My mother the other day told me on the phone that she was, she, she had always been amazed at my capacity to bounce back, and I, I guess. And I'm not too sure it's because I've never had the luxury to linger in despair or, or that I've never allowed myself to not move forward, even in the worst of times, you know, I give myself a couple of days. And then after that, I start to, you know, look at myself. I'm like, come on, the, the best, I guess the, it's a satisfying feeling that I have, or it's the power that I don't give the events. Let's put it this way, whether it's people or events, I don't want them to know that they've taken me down by giving them the satisfaction that I'm that I, I cannot do anything anymore. Mm-hmm. But great, I go through the pain, I grow through go go through the sadness, and then after that, my kind of in parentheses revenge is to get back and to move and to become a better person that I was before that. So after after the the, the wedding. And I did did go through you know a week two weeks of of up and up up and down, but after that I started to put the pieces back together and plan what was going to be next. And I I've always I think from my early years of spending time and you know by myself a lot and 
in the woods or in the local park, um, I've always, I guess, allowed the world to speak to me, to listen to it, to look at the signs that were coming to me. I always feel like life is talking to you, but most of the time we're too busy in our heads and we're not creating the space to hear these messages. So every time that there's something like that that happens, then I, I try to see where life is sending me or pointing me. And then this is when the clues were around and Argentina started to shape itself. I didn't know I didn't have much of a plan other than, I mean, I did have a plan. I wanted to go on a solo wilderness expeditions. I put a, a, uh, a sponsorship package together for an expedition that was absolutely ludicrous and, and ridiculous. Like no way, no one without any training would be able to do that. But can, can, was, you, can you describe what it was you were intending to do? I was going to kayak around the world and I would start by Argentina and I would paddle 300 miles across to across to the Falkland Islands and then I would go, go to Antarctica. And then I would, it was just like, you know, the kind of stuff that uh, not even Mike Horn would do, really would do in the, in the, in the giant boat, but not in the kayak. But I guess it, you know, the... The gravity of the extreme na- nature of the expedition is, I guess, a in correlation to the amount of sadness or pain that I was experiencing. Like it was just, I I so need to get out and and go and and heal that. And that like the idea of going around the world in a kayak is about what it what I need, you know, to 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 come out of that. But I yeah, I guess that's the power that I have over the power that I have over the the elements. I don't have power what happens. I have power over what I do with them. And the quicker I can turn them into opportunities for me to grow, the less power I give I gave those events. So not being defined by by these downs that you know are are um, happen to us. And then the second question was, I I was asking about how the motion and the experience of being out in the wild b- began the healing journey for you. I guess the nature for me has always been a. Uh, I guess my relationship with nature is similar to what people would have to a church or a religion. It's when you seek something that is bigger than you and you put yourself in a humble position and you admit that you're not powerful and you let the world speak to you and you let yourself kind of get lost in that in that force so that's why i kind of compare it to church or religion because people will have that kind of experience and they're healing they will go and make sense of life and their suffering in something that is bigger than themselves. That's for me, that's what I do when I go out into nature, into the wilderness. I'm reminded of these dynamics and these forces that are bigger. And by recognizing them and applying them to my own journey, then I can see how it is meant to move forward. Nature is a world in constant transformation. It is built on tension, disruptions, renewal, rhythm, creation, destruction, and it's constantly renewing itself and moving forward. And 
nature, unfortunately, doesn't have, it doesn't take a sign who's good or who's bad or who's worthy, who's not worthy. It, it has a, an inherent desire just to make things out of nothing and just kind of, it, because it has one purpose, to just evolve. And when you understand that and you understand that you're part of it, then you start to understand that all these elements are there for a reason. They're not meant, life is not meant to be perfect. Life is not meant to be fair. If it was fair, if it was perfect, where would it go? Um, how, where would it evolve if life was perfect? So conflict is kind of built within those foundation of nature because it makes us learn. It makes us evolve. It makes us grow. And the transformation is never a fun process. But that's what brings richness to our lives. So once you start to look at nature and you go into that environment and you open yourself to that kind of teachings and insights, then you come back to life. And not that it takes those moments away, but it gives you a sense of recognizing why they're there and giving you a certain power to continue living and not being defined by the pain and by the sadness. Do you think that that is something that someone has to cultivate? Like I, I, having had those experiences myself in nature, you know, there, there was this, this one documentary about this guy who was summiting some of the, the most dangerous and high peaks in the world. And he, he sort of references what you're saying about the closer we get to death in other words, you know, killing off something that happened to us that we don't need anymore, that nature's doing all the time, the more that we choose to live yeah. in life. But I've, and I, I know that we go on these vacations and we go to the beach and we go to the forest and we feel the effects. But do you think the type of healing that you're talking about, the type of awareness where you can feel your, place in this is something that we need to cultivate. It's something that we need to be consciously thinking about. I don't think the short answer is no. (laughs) (laughs) I will explain. I will explain why. I don't wish my journey on everyone because it's not an easy journey and it's a journey can, that can be quite lonely for some And it's a journey that if you want to build a family and build a career and create a certain stability when you're younger, it might not be the best course of action. What I do believe is that we need to see, protect, and value the people who choose to do it in the same way that we protect and value a CEO of of, of a company. What I mean is they're, they're... artists, spiritual people who choose a lifestyle that is not meant for everyone, but they're there to remind the world of a different perspective. That's what philosophers do. That's what, you know, like I said, artists do. I don't think that, you know, the life of an artist, it might be glamorized, but it's not for everyone. And it's not meant to be for everyone. They're supposed to be on the fringes of society for a reason, so that they can remind 
the rest of the world of different ways of looking at the world. I always say that, you know, not everyone is meant to be an entrepreneur. In fact, if the world was just of entrepreneurs, nothing would work. You know, you need, everybody needs to figure out where they fit and come to peace with where they are. I've chosen a life of where my spiritual development and finding my peace was the priority over anything else. Mm. That was my first career. And in fact, it took me, I'm 47 now, uh, 74. I'm going to be 48. <laughs> Just about a year and a half ago, I had a conversation with a friend of mine and I found myself for the first time saying that, yes, I was indeed successful because the both of us were talking about what we had done in our past leading to where we were at that day. He was telling me how for him, he had seen becoming financially um, free and wealthy was his way of healing himself and finding the freedom to, to, to deal with this trauma. And I looked at my life and money and status was never a, um, a strategy for me. It was something that I could do, but it was never part of my strategy. It was not something that motivated me. What motivated me was more the intellectual curiosity, experiencing something that was bigger than me. And everyone that I surrounded myself with, all these mentors, all these people that, that, that came into my life and where I put my money and all these efforts along the line, I, I realized that they were all put in that direction of my spiritual development. And it got to the point where I, I, I found myself in this place where I knew that I had succeeded. I had succeeded in finding this place where I was in peace. I was not, not the happiest of men or just, you know, walking on, on a cloud, you know, nine to five. It just, that's not, I don't think that life is about that, but I was at the place where I was in peace with my past, where I was going, everything that like, just this, this kind of groundness. And it's, then that I realized that I was successful. That was my first career. Everything that I had done was for that purpose, and I had succeeded in getting to that purpose. And for the rest of my life now, it's to share my wealth. My wealth is the wisdom that I've accumulated, that I've gained, the perspective that I've achieved, you know, that I've that I've gained over my years of, of my journey. And that's my wealth that I'm moving forward. And that's my second career that usually happens, you know, after your forties. Yeah. I think that's really beautifully put, you know, cause it's fucking hard to be an artist, <laughs> any artist, yeah. actor, singer. My, my father is a career musician. You know, we're all in many ways trying to find ways of continuing our art. Mm -hmm. And you reach this place where you have to make a choice or you think you have to make a choice because Success is only defined as one thing yeah. in the in the external world, right? And it is defined as you know money and notoriety. I guess that's two things. And what a what a man is supposed to be doing, also, you know, I was I was in my I got married uh, at forty in two thousand sixteen, uh, forty something. But you know, as as you get older as a man and you're still an artist, going like kind of a nomad lifestyle, you start to feel a lot more the pressure of you're a man, you should be providing somewhere, you should have your shit in order, you should have a bank account with savings. And what are you still doing? You know, it's, it's still, it, it's there. It's definitely there. 
It's absolutely there. I have the utmost respect for those who know inside them what their purpose is and they will chase it and do their best. I think that the priority number one is to chase, explore, maybe explore Mm -hmm. with curiosity and intention, the purpose that calls us, and then do their best to backfill the responsibilities that you know, life demands of us on top of that. But it, it, as I said, it is hard. And, and to the, to the comments you made earlier, you know, finding ways to support artists. I read this quote, I think it popped up on Instagram where it said, remember that during the pandemic, we turned to podcasts, Netflix, we turned to music, we turned to artists to console us as the world delved into chaos and and isolation. And it, it makes me wonder, and if you have ever thought about it, or if you have any ideas around how does a society support all the artists? Because, well, you know, for one example, your book, Feel the Wild, here, which I yes. have, is a meditative, poetic, inspiring, you know, account of, of your travels, you know, but it's, you're not my corn yet to your point earlier and to those who are like, who the hell's Mike Horn? It's like, well, you know, and the list goes on and on. And that is to be in a position where you put something out and it pays you instantly is great, but people still need to put stuff out and it still needs to be found and it still needs to be shared like your work here. So have you, have you ever thought about how we could do it better? (laughs) I think that there's, you know, earlier I was saying that perfection doesn't exist. There's no perfect solution. There, there are solutions where some have an advantage and some don't. And he can try to create an environment where as many people can have, have the tools and the opportunities. But then after that, he cannot, he cannot make people do often what they don't want, what they're not willing to to put for, for themselves. You know, you're talking about the pandemic where some artists actually saw huge opportunities because now they had access to people and there was a demand for entertainment. But there's a huge portion of artists who found themselves absolutely lost because they thrive on the human contact for them to perform inside their room or behind the computer has nothing to do with the craft that they chose to do. So they, they basically, it's like, you know, you start to take the oxygen out of the room and they, you know, they suffocated and just until there was, you know, they were in the survival mode. I think that collectively we just need to realize in our culture that philosophers, artists, people who like to talk more than maybe find solutions have a value it's not a quantitative quantitative value. It's more of a quality or a depth of experience that it's hard to 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 monetize or to quantify. Yeah, quantify. Like, what is happiness? You know, we value happiness, but there's no real quantitative measures to it. Art. You know, there's a lot of debate about what's the value of art. You know, we push people into coding and to becoming like machines because we think that this is the biggest value. But as we transform ourselves more and more like machines, we're taking the humanity out of ourselves and 
the biggest part I think of ourselves is the things that cannot be measured or quantified. So I think it's just culturally, we just need to reconnect with these things that are bigger than us. And I do see the, the light at the end of the tunnel. And that light is maturity as a society, as a culture. The, the North American culture or the, the, the Western world is kind of the, the youngest culture on the block. It's, a, it's the teenager of societies. It's an arrogant one where it believes that the world is black and white. It hasn't suffered much. So it goes around the world thinking that like, I'm going to do all this. And then you go to Europe or you go to other countries who are much older than us. They have a history of collective suffering and they understand that life is not necessarily about how much money you make or about um, what's your status or the, your job and title. On the opposite, it's actually around food and around human connection. You know, you go to Europe and it's normal to sit at lunch for two hours with people over food. Why? Here's my theory. Because there's been several world wars. There's not one person in Europe that hasn't lost things that were taken for granted. They've suffered over a generation and generation and generation. So when the things that you take for granted are taken away from you, what are you left with? You're left with bread and you're left with people. And if you have bread and people at the table, you have hope. And a and little so bit when, of wine. And a little bit of wine. <laughs> so when you do come out of that situation, then you create rituals to remind you of what is important. And sitting at a table with friends, having good food and drinking good wine is priceless. We're too young. But, you know, we'll, we'll, when we start, you know, suffering a little bit, I think we'll, we'll, uh, we'll mature. Do you think that our experience over the last two years with COVID, with the culture wars that we're having, as they, as they call them, is going to drive us more to this slower uh, way of life that focuses more on each other than the accumulation of things and, and sort of planning for the future that may or may not be so you know, I think predictable. It creates an anchor point, definitely. It creates a, a point where people have been able to experience that, and it's long enough. I think had it been only like six months a year, I'm not too sure it would have had a major impact. I agree. Um, you know, 9-11 happened in New York. The week following 9-11, people were like holding hands and just like helping each other. But then a month later, people were back into, you know, to their, their, you need, you need that. And it's not, it's not that it's a bad thing. That's how evolution and biology works. You know, you create these habits, your brain starts to wire in certain ways. It doesn't change automatically. What we're good as a, as a human species is we're good at adapting and figuring out how to go beyond these impasses that we have. But we need to find them ourselves into those places. We need to we need to have our nose against the wall and just like great now there's nowhere to go where I'm gonna go. But it's just if it's just you know a little bleep in your life you know two years and then it goes back to normal then your natural tendency is to go back to what you know. So it's only these rich. But what it does these two years have created an anchor point. So now people can say, oh wait 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 now I'm getting a little bit too far away from that place where I was. 
And I might have gotten myself too far away, but I know where I have to go. Before that, there was no anchor point for anyone. You know, we could talk about, oh, it would be great to do these things. But if we do, it's going to turn the world upside down and my life cannot work. But we did it. So now there's, there's a concrete place that people can go back and say, okay, we managed. We can move forward. And if I find myself into a place that I don't recognize or I don't want to, I have this physical place that I can go back to. So yeah. it will, I mean, it's, it's an effort. I mean, it, it's not going to come easy. We have, you know, an entire industrialization of habits and conveniences and distractions. And it demands an effort now and a discipline that is hard for people to have. And we cannot blame people for finding it hard. But we need to collectively recognize that it's not an easy task to do. No, this, this idea of the importance or the role that suffering plays in transformation is something I want to continue on for a second mm -hmm. here. And I want to figure out how to squeeze it into another topic if I can, um, because we've talked about and we've touched on the, the isolation and the loneliness that has, has come out of COVID. And you and your writings in your books often talk about a loneliness that you felt as a child. And yet maybe the, the contradiction to that is that you solo adventured into lonely, at least without many people, environments in the wild, on a kayak and the forest. And so talk to me a little bit about the transformation of loneliness and the importance of putting yourself in in those environments where there it was just you and turning that into something else, if that makes sense. No, absolutely. And I think I've experienced more loneliness out with my kind um, where you're not supposed to feel loneliness. When you're out there, you're alone. You're in the place of solitude, but I've never felt really a sense of loneliness. There have been moments where, you know, you're, you're in a place and you're experiencing something and you wish, you know, you would be able to share it with someone because there's a beauty to it. I don't call that loneliness. I call that just wishing someone else would, would be there, to, you know, for this, this moment. I think that loneliness is really a kind of a borderline despair because you don't you don't know your place. You don't know where you you where you're supposed to be. And this is why I say, uh, most often, people feel loneliness when you're surrounded by people. Because when you're surrounded by, by by people, you're not supposed to be feeling alone. And so there's a contradiction of like, wait, I'm surrounded by people, and yet I feel totally isolated. This is depressing, and that is loneliness. When I when I go into the wilderness, wilderness for me is my is my studio. As an artist, it's where I go to create. It's where I go to find a blank canvas so that I can receive something that is outside, part of my responsibility and part of something else. I don't know what. It would be like a painter, you know, painter painting in their studio, the kind of content they would create if there's a crowd around them is going to be totally absolute, you know, different than if they're by themselves and it's just them and the canvas. And then you have to go and you have to live with your thoughts. You have to look at that blank canvas and stare at it and just go, what am I going to do? Oh no, not good. Maybe it's not going to be enough. But you go through that, that, you know, that insecurity and then you come out 
that's what nature and wilderness is when I go by myself. It's that place where um, I go to face my vulnerability, my humility, and then to kind of open myself to whatever inspiration is going to come. And there's going to be a story. It's going to be this insight that I know that I receive. And when I receive it, I know automatically. And now I just want to come back and I want to crowd the story and I want to share it because that was my purpose at that moment. And it's always, but nature doesn't have always to be that. Nature is a place for friends to go and to enjoy, to take your babies. It doesn't doesn't always have to be that spiritual experience, but there there are moments for that. There are moments where one person should, as an exercise, go and spend a weekend by themselves. And the way that I that I shared the experience in, during my talks, you know, I'm always in the building usually, but I tell people, you know, the people that are there when they leave the presentation, they'll remember some some of the words that I that I have expressed, some of the stories, the images of the bear, you know, the the, the things that happened between me and, and the audience. But they won't remember much about the space because the interaction is between me and them. But if they were to be in that space in that room just by themselves for one weekend no one else just you know a bed the room and something to eat for a weekend then they would start to notice things about the room cracks on the wall at night they would hear the sound the the, the, the sound that the place has a certain breathing that it that, it, that, you, that you can feel. And you start to realize that this place is alive because now your connection is between you and the place, not mm-hmm. you, you and the audience. And nature is the same. So you can spend your entire life going to nature, but always going with other people. Or when you do, then it's more about you than anything else. You're going to conquer something. So it's, it's more this ego driven where you want to prove something to yourself so you can spend your entire life like this and all and never really getting this depth of experience when you just go by yourself just to listen just to see something that is bigger than you and in that moment that experience i believe you get to see the world in a different uh, different perspective I agree. And, it, and it's a scary, it's a scary part because you realize that you're not, we're not that important. We're important. We are extremely important for certain reasons, but in a big scheme of things, we're not that important. We, we give value to the people around us, our friends, our families, to the people that we impact. But overall, in terms of life, gosh, we're like, you know, we're just, a bunch of apes with computers. <laughs> I uh, I often think about that. I often think about the question of whether or not I add any value, or it's just my consciousness that thinks me thinks that I do. In in not again, not in the space of raising my children, or loving my wife, or making love, or any of those things. Those are valuable experiences to me. But are they valuable experiences to all and everything that is happening? And, and so it's a really, it's a really fascinating point because I am super guilty of charging into the wilderness ego forward. Like, what am I going to conquer today? I know you are. (laughs) And, and that's the athlete in me, you know, and, and never, 
you know, never resting. And I look back at my athletic career and I think about all the time I spent in nature running and the, and the fondest memory I have of 10 years of, you know, traveling around, competing, racing, winning, losing all of it is being in nature running. But the funny thing about that is when I was doing it, I didn't remember it as that. I only Mm -hmm. remembered it as I was focusing on my races. I was thinking about winning and getting better and margins of improvement. And, but for some reason, the memory is held as being in nature. And that's a, that's a, a bit of a, I guess, a way of me asking. So as Daniel, the artist who creates, you know, just beautiful imagery with, you know, with your camera, as well as poetic, you know, journal entries and, and, and prose, when you're out there, how do you decide what is your process of, I'm just going to be in this silence and solitude, or I'm going to turn this into art that I'm going to share? I, so part of my creative process is kind of setting the stage. Like I choose a destination. Signs in my life have been kind of pointing in the direction, oh, this place is calling me. Going over there, reaching out to local people, because it would be absolutely arrogant of me to think that I can be a visitor into a place that I've never been in, being able to capture its spirit. Like I, I have... I have to go and connect with the people who live over there. They're the ones who have chosen to be there. And it's through their eyes and it's through their, my relationship with them that I got to be connected to the wilderness, the, the local nature. Oh, you should go over there. Oh, you should go over there. Oh, let me help you and go over there. And it has become an absolute pleasure to see how the, the, my art, or the journey unveiled itself. And I guess it's, you know, if we go back to the painter, I guess it's the same kind of process where you start with the blank canvas and you start with the brush and you do it over there and a little bit over there, you have no idea where you're going, but you kind of like, okay, I have the canvas. I know it's gonna be there, but beyond that, I'm okay. It's gonna be colorful. I have these colors, I have a canvas, but there is a, a world of possibilities in between. So I picked a place, there are people over there, I have a camera, but then the rest is I have to let go of the control of of a product that's supposed to be. You know, going to, I don't know, Utah and knowing exactly what you're supposed to see and the angles, you're basically shopping and you already have a preconception of what that experience is going to be rather than just going, you know, there's these kind of things over there. There's these people. There has to be a spirit to it. There has to be an energy. I'm just going to go and I'm going to see where it takes me. It's There's always a moment in that creative process where you go, I have no idea if I'm going to be able to do it or if it's going to come or if it's going to show up or if, 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 I mean, I wrote, you know, there's a story in, in, in the book, you know, stripped about this hike that I do in Big Sur where like I'm walking on that on that path, like I'm walking at the sidewalk of New York and I just have all of my anxieties still from the, the parking, you know, the parking lot. And because I'm just worrying if if the animals are going to present themselves because so I'm going to have this, this uh, insight. But with time, 
And I think that's what any artist come to a point, or even an entrepreneur, even yourself now, I'm pretty sure you get less stressed about the unknown because you have to get back. You know that whatever is presented to you, you will be able to find the way around or to, you know, to see the inside. And that's the same thing. When I go out now, I still go through these moments of, I haven't photographed anything. I haven't had that inspiration. I'm kind of blank looking still at the blank canvas, but I just keep moving things around. And then at one point it happens. And then when it does happen, then you just know it. you're in the flow. And then now the inspiration is coming and the, the words are coming and you feel a little bit more comfortable because now you obviously you've produced mm-hmm. and, and then you move forward. But you know, it's for me, I think you need, you need to, to have to make room for the unexpected and for the magic and for the, the, the part that you don't control for, for a painter, it's a blank canvas. You know, where am I supposed to go for a, for a writer? It's the, it's the, the, the blank page. I mean, how many times I've, I've sat in front, in front of the computer, just looking at that page, just go, it's not working. And as much as I want to, it's not working until one morning I sit and I just, okay, now, now, now it's flowing. Or for an entrepreneur, the same, you know, we all, we, we just have to be less afraid of that, that blank canvas. Do you have any routines that keep you creating the opportunities to find those moments that as they come, whether that's a, that's a daily routine, a weekly routine, or just a routine in the field? you know, say a little prayer, meditate before, you know, that type of thing, just to call it in. Like, what's that like for you, Daniel? There's, I'm a, I'm a big victim, a victim of the environment dictates a lot of the the routine. (laughs) If, if, if I'm an environment that allows me to, to work out more, then I'm definitely going to work out more. If, if it's too complicated to work out, I'm like, huh. Like right now, these days, um, I do have my morning routine. You know, I do my, my stretching. I do boxing. There are, day, there are times where I feel, I feel the need to meditate. I don't meditate all the time because for me, I found that I, I don't need to sit down and meditate. There are a lot of things that I do that are meditation. Mm-hmm. I love cleaning the dishes. For me, there's something so meditative in where it's just me and it's just this cleansing process yeah. of cleaning something. And it's just the squeakiness of it that it's just like, and it's, I, you know, that's for me, that's a meditation. When I'm out there, it's creating an environment where the temptations are as minimum as, as possible. I am easily distracted. You know, it's gosh. Who isn't these days? Well, I mean, it's, <laughs> I remember what uh, reading this 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 podcast, and I've always been aware of that, but I hadn't really kind of put it in words in the way that they put it. Like I know I love my glass of wine. <laughs> I love my bottle of wine. I love my glass of wine. I love to write drinking a glass of wine, and if I have like a if if I have if my bar is filled with bottles of 70, 50 dollars, I have no issue not opening them because they're you know they're for special occasions. 
But if I have a bottle of like eh, $10 or a bottle of sake, which is my, my um, poison of choice, and if it's right there, way too easy for me to open it. <laughs> so I don't put myself in that situation. I told my wife, let's, you know, as, as minimum as possible, that the cheap bottles of wine, let's not have them. So that when I do, then I have to go and get the bottle. And then I'm, I'm fully aware and deciding at that moment. So going out into the wilderness is trying to create these situations where, you know, I don't have cell phone or I don't have these distractions. I'm have, like, I'm forced to go into that place. And then once I'm in that place, then I, I find the rhythm. And, but there's always, it's either creating frictions so that it's harder or removing frictions so that it makes it easier. But it's understanding that, it's tough always to do the right thing. So let's not think that we're always capable of doing it. What we can do is trying to create an environment that incentivizes one behavior over the other. Mm-hmm. I think that that is what I try to do. But it's it's really hard for me to have a consistency in things. I'm someone who get I'm not ADD, but I'm not definitely not. But I do have. I do get bored pretty easy. Once once I figure out how to do something, then I get bored. Mm-hmm. That's really interesting. I, I see a lot of similarities in how I found success outside of the structure. You know, uh, you know, where you say I'm going to not bring my cell phone because it's a distraction. It's not necessarily part of a routine, but if it happens, all of a sudden there's this, you know, this this thing that comes from it. And I, and I found that no matter how hard I try and be in a structure to write, to, to work on entrepreneurial projects, whatever is going to come is just going to come when it comes. And I have to have a structure that is able to deal with it when it comes, if that makes sense. And I guess part of that for you, your vehicle, if you will, from what I can tell, seems to be the kayak and your feet separately. And I just, I thought maybe you could share a little bit about both of those separately as ways that you have used to experience nature in the world versus, you know, some of us like driving, some of us like motorbikes, some of us, and you, I mean, day one, you said, you know, kayak around the world was the goal. So obviously you were called to this, this mechanism, right? Of transportation. Uh, there's a bit of trying to do things with the, the resources that you have. I think that, you know, back then, if giving the opportunity of taking a kayak or taking a sailboat, I would have taken the sailboat. <laughs> <laughs> with the $70 bottles with, of wine, right? <laughs> exactly. Um, you know, there are a lot of things that I think some people end up doing, not necessarily because it's what they wanted, but it, where they wanted to go or what they want to get, that was the only options that they had. And, and going and getting there was more important than how you get there. But as you get along, then it becomes part of, part of that, the richness of the experience. You know, we often talk about how, you know, these movie directors create a masterpiece when they have absolutely no money. And then they're given the keys of the kingdom and then they create the worst possible movie ever. And it's not that they wanted to do a movie 
with no resources. It's just that they didn't have it. And then they had to figure out the quality of it that had to be bigger because you, you couldn't afford all the special effects. So it's the same thing for, for me. I find myself today being less motivated and going to rough it out in the wilderness. Obviously, I'm getting old. I'm getting older. You know, I have my book. I have a wife. The idea of just going by myself in a kayak for two weeks, it's, I can see the point. Is it really the thing that will be the, bring the best value to my to my life? Perhaps not. I mean, definitely glamping. Yeah, <laughs> the airstream. The airstream. Uh, yes, and cottage on Tofino, looking at the storm. Exactly. <laughs> you know, it's a different place in my life, and I I found that the kayak for me, because I'm an ocean person, gave me the freedom to do what I wanted to do with the means that I had. And because I had to, you know, I was carrying a lot of stuff, traveling on your own, you don't have the luxury to splitting the, the, the gear. So a kayak, you can, you can, you know, hundreds of pounds of, of gear, your food, your camera and all this, all that is within one vessel and you can go as far as you want to. You know, it's not, I tried trekking a little bit and I busted my knees because I was like carrying 85 pounds yeah. on my back. And I was just like, never again, I'm going to do that. That's not, no, that's not worth That's never. <laughs> so, yeah. so kayak being a, a, a water person is for me, that was my calling. Kayak was my ticket to it considering the options that I had. And, and then the rest is, is me hustling my way forward, you know, getting brands to fill the blanks. And, and I guess that was my, my business background that really kind of helped me make things happen. But, you know, it's, that's why, that's why it's always hard to look back. It's not hard to look back. It's, I think it's pointless to look back in the past and wish that it hadn't been like this because some of that it made you who you are and gave you these opportunities that had life been different, you would have not chosen them, but you would be a different person today. And now, you know, like I said, I'm 47 and I want, you know, I would love to be in an Airstream with a Rivian and just have a total different experience. Yeah. Because my life is different now. What do you think about, you know, you're, you know, it's so funny. I have to tell you. So when I was, I don't know, 20, I don't know what it was. 19 had my heart broken, hitchhiked across Canada. 22 had my heart broken, tried to travel around the world, didn't make it. So there's obviously something about that. And, but much like you, when I did the second trip, I tried to get sponsors because I was going to, I was going to try and film it. And this is very early really? to YouTube, no Instagram. Yeah. I imagine at the writing of Feel the Wild, you would have been similar uh, time frame to uh, that would have been 2008. Eight. Eight, 2008. Yeah, 2008, 2009. Uh, I started to reach out to brands. I was able at the beginning to get $25,000 worth of equipment, which really kind of set me off, but, like give me. You know, I sold the little that I had in New York City and managed to get the sponsorship <laughs> proposal together on an expedition that was just too crazy. But I, Mine was too crazy too. It <laughs> didn't happen as it did. But I'm curious, Daniel, like, how do you see that today? Do you think it's easier today 
to get with Instagram and TikTok and all this stuff to get sponsorship? Or what would be your advice to yourself? Like, sorry, not your advice to yourself, but to others, you know, based on how you did it before and what you're seeing today. If somebody wants to try and put something together like what you did, maybe it's their own little walkathon, you know. I don't think I don't think that that it's easier or harder today. I think that that every like you know, people thought that the internet was going to make everyone enlightened and super smart overnight. When in reality, what it did is just amplified the ratio of whatever existed. So the people who were curious got more curious. The people who were conservative stayed more conservative. And then you get the spectrum in between. Back in my days, there were not that many people who went out. So you just had to kind of be different and be authentic. And you didn't have, there were no contracts and there was a handshake and you just have to create a good relationship. Now you can actually make a better living with, uh, with uh, sponsors, but there's a million people competing with you and you need, and it's a total different world, but the attitude is the same is that you need to differentiate yourself. You have to deliver a product that is authentic or that resonate in that within the, the era, the culture that you live in. So my my advice is always the same, is find something that gives you the motivation to get up and to keep going even, even when you don't want to and figure something, figure, use LinkedIn, use whatever. The tools are there, but the tools are there for everyone also. So the work is the... The odds are kind of almost the same because before you had less people, but it was harder. Now it's easier, but it's easier for everyone. Mm -hmm. So you just, you cannot just rest yourself on the failures of getting where you want to go because you will get them. I mean, you know, the classic story of, of uh, Harry Potter writer Rowling. Yeah, J.K. Rowling. Yeah, and you know how many how many emails have I sent in my life for you know to get my rule usually with emails is that every two weeks I send a I hope your weekend was good. Nothing to do about the question that I asked you know that I've been asking for two weeks every two weeks for six months, but just to be there and be reminded and remind the people that. You know, you're not, you don't take things, you don't take their, their silence personal because you're not sitting in their shoes. I've always said about the sponsorship people or the people that I am after, if I'm after them, there are millions of people after them. Yeah. And they must be getting millions of emails. And what makes my email different? Nothing really. You know, they get off oh, another one asking. And all I can do is kind of be there pop my head in the office, you know, virtually office and just say, Hey, I am there. I hope you had a good weekend until at one point they get to say, don't contact me anymore. Or, okay. <laughs> You've been on my desk for <laughs> six months now. Okay. What is it that you want? And I've looked at your website or this or that. And then, you know, the ice is broken and then you move forward. So it's just be persistent and don't take 
the refusal personal. I mean, the world doesn't revolve around you and you've never been in their shoes. So just be there, be, be, you know, with a smile on your face in emails and just say hi, whenever you pass by. And then at one point they will go, okay, all right, come into my office. Yeah, it's so true. It's I'm so glad you brought that up because I I spent 50, 15 years making a film called Raising Global Citizens. The first path was that more or less broken heart journey. My brother and I went from Mexico all the way to Chile, 2008. So we were in South America, maybe around the same time. But then there was a pause in the middle. And then I picked it back up after leaving New York. And I went with my two girls and we, we went around the world. And I I trying to raise money for that would always get in my fucking head about, about this person doesn't like me. My idea is not good. And I don't, I'm not a huge lover user of social media as a two-way connection. I don't like getting pulled into it because it's not that I think there's anything wrong with it per se. It's just, you know, we're busy, busy there's children. There's all these kinds of things. It's just one more thing. But I, I found to to your point that, well, three things, you know, one was exactly what you said, the friendly, absolutely nothing to do with what you're, what you've asked for yeah. reminder, unbelievable to, um, if you could get face to face in any sort of a way, uh, shape or how, and this is, I've spent thousands of dollars I didn't have at times in my life making sure I was face-to-face with people, even just to bump into them sometimes strategically. And three, social media, sometimes you somehow, if they've if you've contacted them or you've sought them out on LinkedIn, and then they see, it sounds terrible, but they see you post something, maybe about your family. And again, they all of a sudden have this, oh, there's a human being there too. Yeah. And I'm going to try and give that human being some of my time. And maybe it doesn't work out in the end, like there's, you just can't, there's no deal to be made. There's no opportunity to be had, but it's that it's injecting the humanism in the hustle. That is, I I know every single time that I have sent just the email that you described, I felt like I'm just pestering this person. I don't want to do this, but that's not how they see it most of the time. So I think you're bang on on that advice. It depends on the tone of the email. I've emailed you. Why is it that you're not emailing? <laughs> delete, delete, delete. Yeah. But you know, the 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 just being persistent without any attitude whatsoever, just understanding. I guess it's understanding where they come from, also giving them a sense of connection, not just taking them for a shopping cart where like you don't care about them, you just care about what they sit on and then your only concern is just to get there. And then it's not, I mean, I was amazed when I, when I I would go to the outdoor retailer trade show or I would make a trip to, to see a sponsor and they would be like, Dan, they have no idea how many people get our stuff and then they disappear or they're like, they never come to meet They're Like, it's just absolutely like heart, heart wrenching, but ultimately we're humans, we connect between humans and we seek these relationships. And we know, I mean, we know how success for a lot of people doesn't come. I mean, yes, you need to have talent. You need to be able to deliver. 
but a lot of it, a lot of it is about who you know. It's about who will vouch for you or will give it to you. And, you know, even you were saying, like, it might not work with that person, but you created an anchor point with them. So now you have a connection and then they maybe at one point go, you know what? Not me, but you should be talking to this guy or you should, you know, go and see that company. And then, you know, then that, that's how it works. So you have, I think that one of, one of the challenges that, that the younger generation has today is that they take, every, they take everything personal. They take the, the no response personal or the rejection personal or, you know, it's nothing personal. It's just the world moves outside of your control and you're just trying to get something out of something that is moving so fast. So expect not to be able to catch up and, or to run with it at the same time. You're just going to be, you know, you're going to be shooting in the dark for a long time before you're able to catch something. Yeah. Daniel, there's a, there's a moment in your book, Feel the Wild. I won't flip to it for those who are listening, unless you can't remember, where you take a picture of the Sea of Cortez and the sea in Alaska somewhere. Side by side? With a, okay. with a kayak, yes. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm in Alaska, and then there's just like this tranquil ocean. This <laughs> just... I have it here. Yes. There it is. Yeah. I don't know if it can be seen, but... Oh, right there. Hi. There you go. And, you know, maybe you could just describe it, but I, I, I was curious what was going through your head when you decided to put those side by side in the book, Feel the Wild. Well, they, they express a similar feeling of eeriness for me when I, when I, cause I'm, I'm out in the middle of kind of the ocean, the one on the left in the Sea of Cortez, I was doing a 20 mile, 20 mile distance, open, open ocean between the coast and this island, this volcanic island uh, crossing, 20 mile crossing. And here you are, like you're right in the middle, 10 miles to like in both ways. And you know, this is a sea that has the power to turn major ship upside down and use just this tiny little kayak. There's something eerie about being on the back of a giant like this and, and just kind of holding your breath. And then the other one was similar. I'm crossing this giant bay and like you're vulnerable. And yet there's just this tranquility to the moment. And you kind of have to let go of the anxiety, you know, the, 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 you go in your head. And for me, over the years, I've learned, you know, you were asking earlier about a ritual that I have that I've developed over the years. And it's this mantra, the four words that I have to stop, breathe, relax, listen. The idea is to stop and create boundaries, breathe so that you can get a better perspective relax so that you can see clarity and then listen so you can make sound of choices. And ultimately, it's not to let the events or your fears define how you behave and being able to enjoy the moment. So here I am on my kayak in the middle of the ocean. The thought of it is absolutely crazy, but the moment is pure and really tranquil. So you just got to kind of enjoy it and just feel the water. And Kayak for me is, I've written once about how these different, different relationship with water. Being on a sailboat is probably one 
of the deepest sense of freedom that one can have because our world is ocean. And if you have a sailboat, technically you can go wherever you want to go. You can cross oceans, get to another continent. You can live on the water. You can do whatever a lot that you want if you have a sailboat. Diving is pretty much the closest to an experience of being in an alien world. It's not your element. You need oxygen to live. These animals that are built better than you to, you know, to, uh, to live there. And it's easy to die. If, if you take out your, your um, octopus, you die. And when you dive, you know you don't belong there. But being in a kayak is that kind of, it's the most vulnerable you can be because you're sitting on this, you know, this small vessel and you have just like millimeter, millimeters of, of carbon or fiberglass separating you from a body of water. You can feel all the currents, the, the wind, animals that come by, and you kind of have to let go of the control. You can just control the flow and the energy. And it's kind of welcoming this vulnerability riding on the back of giant of a giant and having this relationship creating this tension and just going with it so these two images for me just kind of represent this moment of pure tranquility but at the same time eeriness that's that's so beautiful and i can i can relate in different moments standing on the edges of cliffs and and, and different things like that where that vulnerability comes in in a, in a, in a peaceful moment, but you opened the door so beautifully, Daniel, to talk about space, the final frontier, because you said, which I found very intriguing when you talk about the underwater as an alien world in which we cannot survive in. And when we started talking at the beginning of this podcast, and I said, you know, this a lot has changed. We never talked talked about space once when we when we spoke last year, and now it seems to be much of what you're focusing on. So everything, yeah. How has the exploration and the connection that you have with the the natural world here transitioned into this you know this world that I would I would think is much like what you just described the underwater to be. So at the beginning of 2020 and up to 2020, I've always seen ourselves, and for reasons that are obviously evident, I've always seen ourselves limited to the planet Earth. And I just saw the kind of advance of technology that could actually make us going to space possible. So therefore, you're forced to face the truth and where we have one Earth, and then we have to figure out how to live with it and live on it and not destroy ourselves. And, you know, as life inherently grows, I mean, a cell grows, any species organisms grow, we're not doing, we're not any different. And and in nature, every organisms will grow until there's nothing left to eat. That's, that's what that's is written in the code of every species whether you're a fungus or whether you're a deer or you're a whale, you're a dolphin, you eat until there's nothing left to eat and then you move to something else. And the human species has trouble balancing the chaos nature of nature and the moral aspect that we want to give it to. But the reality is that 
we're doing what our biology is doing, you know, but we're trying to apply a certain logic and certain moral to it. So up to the beginning, I mean, honestly, up to Elon Musk has started to, <laughs> to do what he does, I've always thought that it was impossible. But when he started to take, to take it to the next level, when I started to see these, these rockets that land upright, and when we started to talk more, about, uh, more and more about the technology, I had this aha moment in the same way that I have these aha moments when I go into the wilderness, when I understood that life was never meant to stay on the planet. In fact, from the planet's perspective, not that I want to give the planet a personality and just like give it a gender and all this, absolutely not. But the planet has a journey of existence and has an arc of existence similar to any organisms. It started primal, primitive. It was just rock. It was extremely hostile and it was in full development. Then it became more complex. Then it had some trials and errors. And then they had to start from the beginning. And then it became more and more complex. And then life evolved. But what I understood is life has a knowledge and that knowledge is life. And if we think that life inherently wants to connect, well, there are other places in the universe that have life and also want to connect. And life doesn't want to stay on one planet in the same way that it never wanted to stay as a single cell organisms. It wants to grow, it wants to expand, it wants to connect, it wants to evolve. So for the, for the planet's perspective, for the first time in 4.6 billion years, there is one species that has the capacity to take that knowledge and start that journey out. It's like that single cell organisms billions of years ago that started to multiply and started to become more like we're at that stage, but the planet like for the first time. And I realized at that moment that our expansion to space is nothing different than when the fish came on land and became in turn, you know, the evolution, or when we came down from the trees, is really going into this place where we're not meant to, but we're driven by something that is bigger than us. And what I understood of nature is that nature is always trying to go to places. And when it can't, it's not because it doesn't want to, it's because it's stuck by something else. You know, if you have a glass of water with water in it, the only reason why water is not going anywhere is because the glass is holding it. If you break the glass, the water spills, but it starts its journey in places. Like it's not staying still. It always wants to go in different places. It's going to find some cracks and then it's going to go. And then even when it finds a bigger river, it's still moving. And then even if it gets to the ocean, it's still going to move. So it's always moving forward. And going to space was for me this moment. And we're like, this is what we're this is nature. This is nature's next step of taking life out from a single planet so that you can become a multi-planet, single cell, multi-cell. And we have, we're ambassadors for that life. And it's our duty to take it. And it's also for our own survival. The same reason that when the Europeans left or for any individual of a tribe of a society that leaves a family or that leaves the group it's borderline for survival because now it has outgrown its capacity to use the resources so that now it has to find new 
pastures, new area, a, a group of wolves, you know, in the forest, not all of them will be together forever and never depart. You know, there's an alpha male and then there's an alpha female and then there's a group chemistry. And then at one point it becomes too big. One of them has to go mm-hmm. for the survival of the group. When the Europeans left and came here, Europe was in total shamble. All the resources were gone. And it was this almost destruction over there that gave the incentive for people to go and find new places. So every species will do that. And when it does, it creates two reactions, two outcomes. One is that it forces people to realize that there are problems and you need to fix it. Because otherwise you just take things for granted and you move. It's only when things become more difficult and are taken away that you start to think about things. And then the other, the, the other outcome is that it gives the incentive for people to suddenly push the boundaries and go to places where before they would have maybe not think about it. And this is nothing new. This is from like our tribes in Africa where we, you know, we started in the plains and then we saw the mountains and we're like, there's no way that we can, you know, go over the mountains. And at one point we did find ourselves with a couple of individuals that went and go, you know what, I'm going to go and check those mountains. And then you go and that's how we go. So nature, space is nature, and it is going to be hard, but the success of the human species has been this capacity to defy these limitations that have been imposed on us. This is what we do every time that we find ourselves against the wall and are just like, oh my God, where do we go now? We figure out something because we've passed along this. We've been able to passing along this information and we move, we go beyond every time they would say, Oh my God, this is going to be impossible. No, we go beyond. So the space, there's going to be advancements. that's just going to redefine what we think of who we are and what we can do. And the technology is going to trickle down in the same way that technology has trickled down from the beginning, uh, beginning of time. Every time that there's this, new shift of what it is to be human, you get to a place and it just like, it transforms everything. So for me, it was, it was, a, it was a moment of, of an, like aha moment. And I decided to go full, full steam and these opportunities have started to open to me, uh, which I'm extremely grateful. And I want to talk about those opportunities, Daniel. But I want to ask you before that two questions. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I try to. The first question is just like the wolf pack that you described. Do you see this as a situation where, in order to survive, some of us must venture into space so that the the strain on the resources can recover in Earth, on Earth and thus still survive here? And the second question you know what, I'll let you answer the first one and then I'll ask the second one. <laughs> yeah, I do believe, I mean, I do believe for the same, for the same reason that, for the same reason that, you know, earlier we would not be 8 billion people or soon to be 8 billion if we all lived, you know, in the same city. Like the only reason why we're 8 billion people is because we've spread. We've, we've been able to kind of put us like share, like share the, the yeah, spread. And so 
if we if we continue evolving and in numbers, then we do need to find new places because otherwise it's just going to put too much of a burden on 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 the planet and on the resources. Same reason that if everybody lived, if eight billion people lived in New York City, it will it, it would make it impossible for any, for the infrastructure of the city to cater for eight billion people. I thought eight billion people did live in New York City. I had that wrong. <laughs> I, I know. I know. That's the, the, the for my time that, there. Yeah. It was pretty close to. But you know, there's a lot of things that have been going on around where, like, oh, you know, going to space when there are problems here, and then leaving the world behind. No one is leaving the world behind. You know, Ariana Huffington was complaining about that. I'm like, wait, Ariana, you were born in Greece. You live in the U.S. You didn't abandon. Greece, you are still connected to that heritage, and actually, you promote the values of Greece as you carry them with you. And you, you, you all live on on this world of roots, where you come from, and where you're going. Yeah. Going to space is going to be the same thing. We're not leaving anyone behind. We're just expanding and just finding new new places. And it's just going to be a, just a bigger world. But no one is leaving the problems behind. I wrote how, you know, back in the 1900s, there were a bunch of social and cultural issues, diseases left and right. And you had Tesla, Edison, who were trying to power the world. And you had the Wright brothers who were like trying to fly a plane, not necessarily doctors trying to, you know, to solve diseases. But ironically, right after their time, right after that era of discoveries of technologies, all the diseases, most of the diseases disappeared and life expectancy started to shoot. So it was not necessarily their effort on curing diseases, but it was kind of expanding, creating a stage for a new era that allowed this entire society to, 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 um, to arise. And it's going to be the same thing for, for space. I wrote today about how recycling there's going to be technologies of recycling and, and space that are just going to be insane because the incentive to sort of to recycle in space is massive on earth. And, you know, the resources are everywhere you can trash, you can do your things, you know, you don't have the, the, you know, the knife against your throat because it's easy. But when you go to space, all your resources are going to be so precious that you will never be allowed to throw out garbage in, in space because that would be like pouring a glass of water in a desert. That, that atom of carbon that enters your spaceship can never leave after that. You'll finally figure out a way to recycle and reuse it over and over and over again because you cannot find them in space or on other planets until you find another planet. So there's so many technologies that are going to be at the benefit for Earth and that is one aspect. And then the other aspect is just um, uh, resources. Once we're able to mine out um, in places that are desolate and, and less um, resource intensive, then, you know, it's going to take away the, uh, the, the pressure on the planet. So that's future space. <laughs> I, it's, it's fascinating. And I, and I feel like this is the, the, the tip of the tip of the tip of the iceberg, you know, spirituality. Yeah. So I don't want to assume anything in terms of your, your spirituality, but how do you see if you, if you have an inclination towards spiritual practice or, 
or our our spiritual dimension as human beings, you know, physical, spiritual, as a combined entity. Where do you see, if you can even articulate it, because I can't even comprehend it, as this, you know, the human race ventures into space and our our definition of how we understand our spiritual self has been framed on this earth, mm-hmm. right? As in in a, in a very very uh, plentiful amount amount of ways, uh, you know. But all in many ways, there's a through line of seeing these layers and where we fit into those layers. Any thoughts on how? we as a species reconcile with that, you know, either for yourself or for someone who is of a spiritual faith and, and devoted to that practice and belief? I'm extre- extremely spiritual in the sense that I accept that there are things that I don't understand. And then there's, there are forces that are way beyond me. I also understand the human capacity to create stories, to give purpose. That will never disappear. I mean, we've we ever since that we've we've gotten the knowledge of writing and communication, we start to create stories, and we create and these stories have evolved, and they merge, and then they become more. And whatever society dominates at that time, then it's more their storytelling. And obviously, as we go into space, there's going to be new storytelling, new new storytelling stories that help us frame the unknown. There's going to be new religions, I assume. There's going to be people who continue not to believe. And it should, but I don't think that the foundation of how we are is going to change as we go to space. And it has been over the last 5,000 years. It's just going to be different names, different the form is going to be the same. You know, we talk about these stories of certain religions and we discover that they're not only to them. They're like, they're remnants of different other thoughts, other religions or, or cultures that have been kind of passed on through different societies and times. And then suddenly you have this new story. And I think the moving forward is going to be the same thing, you know, a hundred years from now, there's going to be settlements in different places and then you, they're going to have their own ways of looking at the world. But in, in my case, I, I don't, don't believe, but I don't believe also. I'm someone who remains open until proven that it's not. There, there, there are areas in life that I have no no capacity to make a judgment. The only thing that I can that I can confirm and I confirm is I can look at the world around me. I can look at nature, which is bigger than me, and I can see in nature if someone, if an idea like a god who has a capacity to control uncontrolled thing, does it make sense? Or does it work when I apply that theory into nature? And if the answer is no then this is where I'm going to lean. And right now in nature, nature is a driving force that wants to evolve, that wants to become more than it was. And because of that, it created a system that 
is hard to deal with because it's, as I was saying earlier, it's always filled mm-hmm. with tension, disruption, creation, and destruction. It's unfair. It's not perfect. And it's not meant to be perfect. And it's not meant to be fair. And all I can do is I can give myself the tools and the tools around of the people that I care or how to navigate that river so they can find their peace and, you know, and comfort in the journey. And when it comes to these speculation of the, you know, of, of, of a world that is inaccessible to me, um, I respect anybody who create with their own stories, but I'm in, I'm in no position to have something that is, that is definite. It's, it's really tough subject matter. I, I totally understand. And I, you know, I would be, I want to be sensitive of time because we've been chatting a long time, but you, you know, you just fascinate me so much. And now we've opened up this, this black hole. <laughs> and well, listen, we, can do, we can do it two parts. I'm totally fine with it. It's up to you. We, we might need to. So I'm going to just ask you two, two more questions mm-hmm. and then we'll, we'll take a, a, a pause to drink $70 wine or cheap wine. <laughs> yes. Um, or mate, over, or mate, oh, which you that have. that over over like a, a fire campfire or before you ask the questions, this is something that I have a hard time with. For me, there's a magic to have a real fire with wood and the sound and the warmth and the fireplace. And the idea of having a fireplace with gas, they're just so no, never. I don't. <laughs> I don't. I you're gonna you're gonna one. move to the planet where there's a, a fire. There's a, a, a fire with wood. Is what you're I saying. know. Yeah. <laughs> I, you know the again. I don't know about you, but you know I practice yoga and I, and sometimes I cleanse my chakras or I have somebody else cleanse my chakras for me. And you know, without getting into it too much, and whether or not or how much of it I really understand, because I don't really understand it. I'm not a, a yogi or a mystic or you know, a Reiki practitioner, but I do, I do notice the energetic effects of these things. And I understand to a degree, the principles that are being applied to it. And I just, I'm curious, are this like, when we talk about exploration into space and creating new life, do you think that the same energetic principles that make that feel so good here in our bodies, part of our body's alignment would apply in that? It will, I mean, it will, it will, it will evolve in the same, in the same way that has evolved with us over time. Like, I don't believe that these, that energy didn't exist until we started to feel it. Yeah. It's like the, you know, I've always, I always joke that science always just is good at discovering things that already exist. (laughs) It's, It's like, we always tap ourselves in the back. It's like, oh my God, we discovered something. Well, it's always been there. It's just that now you have a way to measure it. So there's, there's a creating a situation where now you can be more aware to it and you can recognize how to affect it, damage it, or maintain and protect it. You know, back in, back in the days of our, you know, in our evolution, we were mostly in, in the state of survival. We never had really the freedom to go and think about, you know what, my chakras are not in line today. Um, <laughs> no, you need to go and, and, and sow the seed and work the land and provide and, and you know, make babies because half of them are going to die. And life 
was not fun, you know? So you were never in that place. Only recently now we have the, the, the luxury to take the moment and start to ask these big questions. As we go, you know, over, you know, to, to space and we, we push those thoughts where we can go and, and what, what it means. And we get to experience the overview effect, you know, going to space and looking back and seeing this planet where, you know, all these stories that we've heard that we made, these conflicts, these dispute, these love affairs, these generations, all that happened on that you know, little planet on the with the backdrop of, of the blackness of space, we're going to, you know, it's going to re it's going to make us like, a, it's going to be a shift, a cognitive shift in, in how we perceive things. But we will, if we discover things, it's not because they're new. It's just because now we have a better capacity to open ourselves to them in the same way that now we have a better understanding of trauma that happens when you're young and then, you know, you, you carry them and then you have to, to work with them. Back then, yeah, the trauma existed, but you just drank over it or, you know, and then you went out and fight with someone because you didn't know better. Yeah. So I, I don't believe that things don't exist. It's just that you start to get to see them when the, the situations are right. Thank you. And I, I'm not sure if Elon thinks it's part of the big question, whether or not your chakras are aligned in space. <laughs> that was just, you know, my Western privilege bullshit throwing that in there. But please, you know, as we wrap up part one of an inevitable part two, what is your specifically the future of space and space 100.1? Uh, so, it, what, what are those projects for you? It started with Space 110. To make a long story short, I was presented with an opportunity to go up into a capsule company called Space Perspective. It's a capsule that holds, uh, that holds eight people, and it's a giant balloon that goes up to the edge of space, so 100,000 feet, oh. high, enough, uh, high enough so that you can see the curvature of the Earth and you see the blackness of space but not too high so that you lose the, the gravity. So That's I was wild. asked, yeah. <laughs> so I was asked to go up as a photographer at the end of 2024. And when the company presented me with the opportunity, I said, how about we don't do it about me? How about we do it about me taking kids up? And all my lights went on. And I saw why I was in space and why I decided to make that pivot. Like, and I saw my next 50 years. Um, that would be my legacy project, something that I can even do when I'm 70 years old or 80 years old, that every year I'm going to, we're going to gather 10, 16 year old young explorers, 16 years old, because at that age, it's really like your, your view of the world is really gets the foundation at that age. 18 years old, you're already kind of like, man, the world, the world is that. It's the sweet spot. <laughs> exactly. It's a sweet spot. <laughs> so 10, the branding aspect of it, the space, 110, it's, 100, it's 10 children over 10 years. So 10, 10, it's 100. But my goal is for the rest of my life, every year we'll create a foundation or an organization that funds these the, uh, that voyage uh, for these young 16-year-old explorers. And if one day we can take them to the moon, then we take them to the moon. But it's really to have this experience of this is what you can do in life. 
Um, and the selection of these children will be a mix of what we call merit. So you have to apply video interview process, all that kind of stuff. I'm sure There's, you can hear my dog now. <laughs> oh yeah. No worries. <laughs> yeah. So merit. And then the other, um, uh, another category is going to be grace. So we're going to go and seek out young people who would never have this opportunity, whether they're foster kids, uh, refugees, or people just born on the wrong side of the track. And then finally, there will be what we call luck. And there would be two individuals who can be someone has the capacity to pay for their trip or they know the right people or they have a way to find, you know, to put themselves onto that flight. And because life, success in life is a combination of those three things, hard work, merit, being in the right place at the right time, luck, and also getting helping hand from, from someone. So Space 110, that for me, this is going to be one of my main focuses for the rest of my life. And until 2024, I was looking for something to help support this endeavor. And my wife and I were talking about what we would like to do together. And we saw this opportunity to create an experiential event that would kind of gather the decision-making people, the investors, innovators. Think of a Davos slash South by Southwest slash Sundance Park City, Sundance Film Festival slash Summit, you know, Summit. But for this future of humankind in space. So the future space was started. Our idea, our vision is to create that big event starting in March of 2023 that would be in Sonoma in Hillsburg right now. This is where we're aiming for. And it would become this kind of like annual gathering where space is discussed not as a keynote presentation, but more having these philosophical fireside conversation between people that are expert and people that are celebrities. So think of having Will Smith talking to Neil deGrasse Tyson on the stage, talking about the future of humankind, that kind of, of interaction. Having George Clooney talking to Nicole Stott, uh, astronaut. So like really kind of broadening the narrative of space and not making just about space geeks or space, space rockets, but more about everybody. Mm -hmm. And it would be with the decor of earth. Well, you had your dog. Now we have, yeah, we got all kinds of background, um, <laughs> but it's the, it's celebrating because it would be in Sonoma surrounded by oak trees and vines celebrating the bounties of the earth while at the same time planning the space or journey into space. And so future space is this event. And in the meantime, I'm doing everything that I can to develop the narrative and brand awareness, obviously future space and creating the dialogue. So on LinkedIn, I write about space weekly and I do interviews of invest the, the leaders and shakers of the industry, innovators, investors, public figures, um, governmental uh, figures, et cetera. So. That's fantastic. It's incredibly exciting. You must, you must just feel full of energy. So, you know, where, where can people tap into that energy, your energy, where can they follow you, find you, check your, check out your beautiful pictures, all of that stuff. If they, want, if they, if they align their chakras, yeah. they will come, I will come to yeah. that. 
in that cloud backdrop that you have right now, right? You're yes. Kind of- no, I mean, they can go obviously on my website, danielfox.co.co, but I'm extremely active on LinkedIn. This is where people can find me. Even my, I mean, if they type Daniel Fox on, on LinkedIn, they'll see the red jacket, which is mine. And then I have the newsletter um, and there's going to be video interviews on YouTube, but they start on, on my website. They can even email me um, and then they'll start to follow me and see my work. But I'm pretty easy uh, just typing, Googling my name and I'll come up. That's fantastic. And I would also you know, recommend that, that anybody, because when they go to your website, you, you can purchase Feel the Wild right from there. And it's just, it's such a, an inspiring personal account of, of adventure that, and when I say inspiring, I mean, it inspires you to take that step, whether out, whether it's to your local park, because you haven't done it in a week or two. And you just, it, it just reminds you to get back out or, or to take that big, crazy trip that doesn't make any sense <laughs> that you should try and take anyway. And, and I think in that way, Daniel, you're, you're a gift. You're, you're a beautiful thinker and you're a beautiful creator. And I love that you are, you're so limitless in what you believe to be possible and what you are willing to explore. And so I do look forward to our second conversation and I thank you so much for your time today. Thank you, Joel. And congratulations on all the beautiful things that you also have had in your life lately. And uh, I look forward for our next conversation. Thank you. Thank you. As always, thanks so much for listening to The Ramble. No, there is a lot of podcasts out there. So we thank you for choosing to listen all the way through on this one. You know, we want to be part of the, the solution, the, the good questions, the things that move you and inspire you, and make you want to connect deeper with yourself and others, you know, all that great stuff. So if the spirit does move you, subscribe, share, post, anything. We'd be forever grateful. And if you have any comments or feedback, good, bad, ugly, it doesn't matter. We're here to listen. Guests you think we should have on. Of course, send them along. Thank you. And until next time, peace.